0: Hello, you're tuned in to WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Community Wellness Watch, a program about public health. My name is Emma Weiss, WERU intern and your host for the next hour. Special thanks to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. You may have heard our brief Community Wellness Watch announcements throughout the past few months, and we are so excited to bring you our third full-length program for this project. Each month, I sit down with healthcare providers to talk about how they've adjusted their practices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and how they continue to keep our communities healthy and safe. This is not meant to serve as professional medical advice, but rather we hope to inform listeners of healthcare resources in the area and give a huge thank you to these providers for their very important work. Today, we'll be talking about mental health and substance use support and recovery services. Before we get started talking with our guests, since we will be talking about mental health today, I wanted to provide some resources for those who may be struggling with mental health issues or have loved ones who may be struggling. The Maine Suicide Prevention Program Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress. They provide prevention and crisis resources for you and your loved ones, as well as best practices for professionals. The Maine Crisis Hotline can be reached at 1-888-568-1112, and the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at one 800 273 8255. Additionally, NAMI Maine is a safe and confidential mental health service and provides support, education, and advocacy for anyone with questions about mental health concerns. Their helpline is available Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and can be reached at 1-800-464-5767. They can also be reached via email at helpline at namimaine.org. Thank you all for tuning in and on to the show. It is my absolute pleasure to have with me today Teresa Mastricolo, Supervising Manager at Mid Coast Recovery Coalition in Camden. Teresa, thank you so much for being here today. And we have with us two providers from the Mount Desert Island Hospital Behavioral Health Center in Bar Harbor. We have with us Dr. Megan Hausneck who is a psychologist at Mount Desert Island Hospital. She obtained her master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology. She's practiced in a wide variety of settings. And before arriving to Mount Desert Island, Dr. Hausnick was a psychologist at the University of Maine Counseling Center. She previously practiced in California and was the lead psychologist of an adolescent intensive outpatient program at Sharp Healthcare in San Diego. Her areas of expertise include addiction, eating disorders, trauma, and therapy with children and families. So welcome Dr. Hausnick. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Emma. Happy to be here. And we also have with us Dr. Andres Abreu, who is a psychiatrist at Mount Desert Island Hospital and a clinical instructor in psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Abreu earned his medical degree from Whale Cornell Medical College and completed his psychiatry residency at Maine Medical Center. Dr. Abreu also received fellowship training in hospital-based psychotherapy at Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. His clinical interests include addiction, psychiatry, and psychodynamic psychotherapy, and he's received extensive training in multiple multiple evidence-based psychotherapies, including good psychiatric management, mentalization-based treatment, and transference-focused psychotherapy. As the director of the Mount Desert Island Behavioral Health Center, he oversees the MDI Hospital Penn Medicine Psychiatry Program, which brings residents from Penn Medicine to MDI Hospital each year to practice on the island under his guidance. And thank you, Dr. Abreu, for being here.
1: Oh, thank you, Emma. That was a mouthful.
0: (laughs) So to get things started, and maybe, Teresa, we can start with you, can you tell our listeners a bit about your organization and about the services that you provide?
2: Sure. Sure. Uh, Mid-Coast Recovery Coalition started off uh, about 2016, I believe. The idea was to collect recovery resources. There was a hotline um, and the organization sort of morphed and changed and they obtained uh, a men's recovery house. So we have um, the Friends House, which is in Rockland, Maine, and it's a men's Recovery residence. And from there, we wound up obtaining uh, 63 Washington, which is our women's residence. So we provide the two, you know, recovery houses. We can house, I can hold seven or eight women, uh, depending on if they have their children with them or not. The men's house can house about 10. And so we provide all the resources that come with that. You know, there's always new things coming in that we are able to. Offer to our residents. We help other community organizations with recovery work um, because recovery is not just one (laughs) one thing. It bleeds into all all different areas. And so um, I've been with the organization a little over two years. I wish we had more houses, but (laughs) you know, for for now, I'm happy to see the way that the organization has has transitioned just into
0: housing. Here's Dr. Abreu from MDI Hospital.
1: So, Mount Desert Island Hospital is a 25-bed critical access hospital located in the heart of Bar Harbor. The hospital really serves the close knit uh. uh, island communities of Mount Desert, Islesford, Great Cranberry, Swans, and Frenchboro, as well as the surrounding communities of Trenton, Lemoyne, and other parts of Downeast. The hospital itself was founded in 1897 and has grown over the past nearly 125 years to encompass six primary care health centers, a dental clinic. And then the Behavioral Health Center, which is where Dr. Hausnack and I are based. Our clinic offers a full array of outpatient psychiatric services as well as psychotherapy services. And those would also include medication-assisted treatment for patients affected by opioid use disorder.
0: And I'm curious to know, how did you all get involved with this line of
3: work? So this is Dr. Hausnack. I actually studied acting in college. And in acting, you do character studies to understand the character you're playing. And part of that is understanding their driving needs. And this became my favorite part of my acting training. So I parlayed this into my study of the psyche in graduate school and clinical psychology. But more importantly, even, I also had personal encounters with mental illness. I had a family member with severe depression growing up who was in and out of the hospital when I was in high school. And this gave me like a firsthand understanding of Really, adolescence and also emerging adulthood, and how it's a very dynamic time where you have adult size stressors at times, like family crisis, but you also have the stressors of childhood and youth to contend with. So it's a double duty. And I have watched, you know, just as a follow up, I've watched that family member recover with professional help, and live a meaningful life. And lastly, I am in substance use recovery myself for 17 years. So I have a deep appreciation for the courage it takes to break free from an addiction and then the commitment it takes to stay stopped. Really, um, as Teresa mentioned, recovery is about a lot of things, <laughs> so in my job, I get to use my creative and analytical parts of my brain as well as my heart and all these personal experiences I shared. So I really use all of me, and it's very fulfilling, and I just have a lot of fun seeing a lot of people from different walks of life and helping them. Here's Teresa Mastricolo
0: from Mid Coast Recovery Coalition. For me, uh, I am
2: <laughs> I'm four and a half years sober, so I, in my recovery journey, you know, decided to become a contributing member of society and be a grown up and get a real job. And, uh, you know, I was in the restaurant business for years and I got into banking and I realized that I could not live a life of integrity and still be in banking. And so (laughs) I wound up taking a giant leap of faith and leaving my job. And um, I took on, I was going to volunteer one day a month at the recovery residence. And then uh, when things just fall into place, because they're so meant to be Uh, within two weeks I think I was the interim house manager and then within another month I guess they were just like oh I was one of the only house managers I found that I have to do work that feels good and is fulfilling and there's so much uncertainty in early recovery um, and it's such really like painful work to share with strangers so it's I don't know how I would do anything else. <laughs> it's been a really long and trying journey, um, but it has absolutely
1: been the best work that, I, that I've that i ever done so far.
0: And here's Dr. Abreu from MDI
1: Hospital. My decision to actually enter into psychiatry goes, I think, back to a single patient experience that I had during the third year of medical school in New York. And so I met a patient at that time on the inpatient psychiatry unit who was really just a few years younger than me, he had emigrated from Mexico City, which is actually where I was born. And apart from that rough approximation, our differences far numbered our similarities. For one, he was an economic refugee with undocumented immigration status, limited English proficiency, working long hours at a bodega in the Bronx. And that's many blocks uptown from the hospital where we met on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. For those who don't know the Upper East Side of Manhattan, it's a pretty, uh, I think, the term is bougie uh, area of New York. And this individual that I had the chance to meet was, you know, a fish out of water for, for that neck of, of Manhattan. Uh, he'd actually been brought to the hospital after police had apprehended him in Times Square. He was, I think, threatening, but more so was having an acute crisis uh, around his mental health and was actually threatening to take his own life. And luckily, you know, police identified that that's what was going on and, and got him to care uh, when we met, it was pretty clear that he was in the throes of some kind of psychosis. You know, he had these persecutory delusions, remained extremely hypervigilant, was withdrawn, was struggling to really make any connections with other patients, the staff, and that social isolation was compounded by his lack of familiarity with English. I was the medical student caring for him on the team, and luckily my ability to speak the same language allowed for engagement that he wasn't really able to get in other places. I was young, still relatively young, I like to think, but also more naive back at that time. And I really tried to make a, a, a connection with him and foster a sense of purpose, which you know was really difficult for him on the unit. Um, and it had really clearly evaded him. I, I think back to the experiences that I had with him because we would come together all the time and just be able to speak. You know, I was trying to get to know him, try to get to know his experience, what he'd been through, and just have someone to um, be there for him to open up to if if he wanted to. And and that's really difficult for most people. It's even more difficult for people in a strange setting, unfamiliar with, you know, their surroundings or the language or the culture, but even more so for people who are in the throes of a a psychotic episode. And, you know, we would play this card game that I played growing up called Rey de la Esquina or Kings on the Corner. And, And that's a A culturally well-known game for people of uh, Hispanic, but even more so Mexican descent. And, you know, we'd watch soccer games together on my little smartphone. And, you know, the one thing that I remember more than anything else is that he improbably predicted the score of this really hotly contested soccer match between two very exclusive Spanish soccer clubs, Real Madrid and Barcelona. And I, I remember asking him, you know, just as we were about to sit down together to watch this on my on my smartphone, what, what he thought the outcome of the match was going to be. And he said three, three. And I said, that's, that's impossible. That's not what's going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, that for me, was just a really sweet moment. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of my entry into the field of psychotherapy and, you know, more broadly speaking, psychiatry. And so when it came time to apply for residency, I was still undecided, but it was this experience that I came back to and continue to come back to when I think about what led me to become a psychiatrist.
0: What a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Shifting towards talking about the pandemic, I'm so curious to hear from all of you when COVID first struck back in March of 2020, which feels like quite a long time ago now. Can you tell me and our listeners a bit about how your organization responded? Um, What were the first changes that you made to your practices to keep your clients and staff healthy and safe? So during that time, I was making a cross-country move from California. This is Dr. Hausnick from MDI Hospital.
3: Uh, largely due to the COVID pandemic. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, I worked at UMO in the counseling center for the remainder of 2020. So I can speak about what we did there. We transitioned to telehealth overnight. Uh, we provided 24-hour crisis support in conjunction with the University of Maine PD. You know, and that involved, you know, I was receiving calls in the middle of the night and over the weekend for for students in crisis. We did increase our focus on suicide prevention, given that students were less connected with each other and and less connected with resources. About half were learning remotely from their home states and their families' homes. So the other important thing we did was as psychologists, we all obtained out-of-state psychology licenses. So I think at one time I had nine psychology licenses. We all divided up. Oh my up gosh! <laughs> so um, it was quite an undertaking, but we really, we really went the extra mile—no pun intended—to—to to get make sure that all students had access to treatment. So I'm proud of all that.
0: Here's Teresa Mastricolo from Mid Coast Recovery Coalition. When COVID started, everybody shut
2: down, Uh, all the recovery houses shut down, and um, we did not. (laughs) We remained open until we were full. As far as our practices went, you know, we had to um, figure out a way to stay safe without uh, impeding recovery work, which wound up being pretty easy because all recovery stuff kind of shut down too. So (laughs) we, uh, we did phone intake interviews and the house filled up pretty quickly. Um, we had most of the residents were working, so we figured out ways that they could come and go safely. The only thing we really restricted were overnights. you know uh, we asked that nobody at least for the first few months that nobody would go take overnights with family because then we didn't really have any control over you know who they were around so we probably got a little bit more involved in everybody's recovery work made sure that everybody had you know, shifted into, um, you know, online appointments with their doctors helped everybody find online resources for meetings. We held meetings at our house. I held yoga classes at the house. We did meditation. I mean, we just, we turned everything inward. So stuff that I normally encourage our ladies to go out and do, we tried to figure out ways to do it at home. Um, I had a dance instructor come hold a class out in our parking lot. Uh, (laughs) we started to garden, you know, just, um, we, we did everything that we could to make our little tiny microcosm um, at the house like feel full and, and not feel like they were missing anything. So we found some community activities to do, like uh, yard work for neighbors and friends um, to get people kind of outside and out and about. We just did a lot of check-ins, just... <laughs> An enormous amount of checking in and making sure, you know, everybody's needs were met um, because they were definitely a lot more than what we had been used to before.
0: Here's Dr. Abreu from MDI Hospital talking about the changes that were made in practices at the Behavioral Health Center in response to the onset of the pandemic last March.
1: One of the things about MDI Hospital that I mentioned earlier is that it's a critical access hospital and uh, that, that's really important to keep in mind because there are certain additional restrictions uh, that exist around the use of telehealth services in critical access hospitals. And so prior to March 2020, telehealth services uh, really didn't exist in any robust form at MDIH. Uh, really, they were limited to providing care to the outer island communities. And that was done through a unique partnership through the Maine Seacoast Mission and Swans Island Clinic. With the state of emergency brought on the pandemic, they, these rules around telehealth services were loosened, and that allowed MDIH to offer this kind of care, telemedicine, telehealth, much more routinely than it ever had previously. And as you can imagine, and you know, Dr. Hausnecht alluded to this in, in her comments, that you know, that represents a an opportunity, but also a challenge because we didn't have the infrastructure in place to quickly scale up to, you know, a fully virtual clinic overnight. And yet we were able to do it. We have a fantastic IT department at MDI Hospital, and and we were actually the first clinic to move to an almost fully virtual uh, platform in terms of care delivery. Uh, The other challenge we face and really still continue to face relates to the large rise in demand of psychiatry and psychotherapy services Since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been a rise in the incidence of domestic violence, increased housing and food insecurity, job and economic impacts. And from our vantage at BHC, we were seeing firsthand what these impacts meant in terms of psychiatric symptom burden. And so one of the things that we've kind of been in the mode of is trying to triage who's in need of care uh, urgently and uh, trying to meet those needs as quickly as we can. Uh, But it's a challenge. You, know, you can quickly scale up IT infrastructure. You can't do that for staffing, particularly when you're in a rural state or a rural county in a rural state. So we had to think really creatively about how to leverage the expertise that we had as much as possible to try to meet the rise in demand for care. One of the things that we've been working on uh, quite extensively at MBI Hospital is trying to become more Im- integrated into the primary care centers and providing collaborative care. What this means practically is that psychiatrists are providing hands-on support to primary care doctors, PAs, and nurse practitioners to be more effective in providing evidence-based treatment approaches to patients presenting with psychiatric symptoms. So we want to be there at the point of care when when a patient is sitting across from their primary care doctor, PA, or nurse practitioner, and that team of primary care practitioners is in need of help around a psychiatric question. We're able to kind of just zoom into the session with the patient's consent uh, and offer services or consultation to the primary care practitioner, talk about what they might want to consider with the patient while the patient's there with their primary care practitioner. So it's a way of being uh, an expert on the ground when we're most needed, um, and that's really effective and well received by patients as well as primary care practices. we We do it also asynchronously. So sometimes uh, primary care practitioners need help, um, and we aren't able to get the scheduling right. And one thing that we'll do is then have primary care practitioners requesting e-consults. And so they'll ask for a chart review uh, so that then we can provide some considerations for treatment around psychiatric symptoms. And that's something that we've been doing uh, to a great degree at at MDI Hospital. I think the last thing that I just want to highlight is that we also tried to increase access to medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder and We have a nurse practitioner, Linda Napier, who works at uh, really what is our sister clinic, you could say. We have a unique partnership with the Downey's Treatment Center in Ellsworth. And so we increased the number of hours that she was spending with us at the Behavioral Health Center while also maintaining her practice at uh, the Downey's Treatment Center in Ellsworth. And we're really pleased to have her.
0: I asked Dr. Abreu and Dr. Hausnick if they could speak more about the benefits and challenges of telehealth, specifically providing psychotherapy remotely rather than in person. I find the idea of being able to see oneself during therapy uh, over Zoom or virtually really fascinating. So I asked whether they could speak a bit about their experiences with this as providers.
3: I can speak about it um, just in terms of, you know, we just recently shipped, uh, shifted from back from telehealth to in-person therapy. And I was happy that that, that shift happened. You know, I will have to say, that, you know, I'll, I'll preempt this by saying that the research is showing that telehealth or teletherapy is as effective as in-person therapy. But many people would say and, and have the perspective that the relationship in the in the therapy room is as important as any intervention that you're doing and for me personally it was hard harder to develop that deep trusting attachment Um, and we call it the corrective relationship in therapy when um, i was over zoom so i think returning to in-person therapy which we are at this point at mdi hospital allows for that connection i think people feel better coming in but then there's a, the flip side of the coin, which is where we're having to negotiate our our safety and the safety of the patients. So we're still masked, and we're requiring patients to use masks as well. And you know, have more information now, two years almost two years later, that it's airborne and the ways that we can better keep ourselves safe, knowing that as well. Like having windows open and air purifiers in our offices and still maintaining social distance and all that kind of good stuff.
0: For those of you who are just tuning in, this is WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. My name is Emma Weiss, and this is Community Wellness Watch. Today, we're talking about mental health and substance use recovery throughout the pandemic with Teresa Mastricolo from Midcoast Recovery Coalition and Dr. Hausnicht and Dr. Abreu from the Mount Desert Island Hospital Behavioral Health Center. Could you talk about how social distancing and isolation due to quarantine affected your clients? Were you seeing patients who may not have sought out your care prior to the pandemic?
2: For us in recovery, as far as like social distancing and and quarantining, and you literally couldn't do a worse thing to people in early recovery. The lack of connection is what puts us in long-term substance abuse. So then to be told that we need to heal and get better, But take away, I mean, just the simplest of things, like sitting in a meeting with other, with other alcoholics and other addicts, and then not being able to hold hands at the end of a meeting, not being able to hug somebody who is in such a horrible struggle that like they're broken, they're crying, they're, you know, and you you're like trying to comfort them, you know, half masked and from six feet away. And it felt, it felt awful. It felt desolate um, for me you know, things outside of our house were definitely um, affecting everybody that was coming in. It didn't make anything easier. You know, that's, that's for sure. I think it probably pushed some people to a heavier, more involved, you know, substance abuse situation um, because of the isolation and and the quarantining. Maybe some people could have kind of strung along a semblance of a, a, you know, a normal life and not sought out help quite as early as they did when they got really pushed to that, that feeling of alone. It was, I mean, the recovery community, every, every community was hit really hard with all of this, but honestly, that the recovery community, uh, the fact that things were closed, but you could still buy alcohol the whole time, you know, it was like overwhelming almost at times. <laughs> so we felt, I mean, we felt that in a very, very intense way.
3: Here's Dr. Hausnick from MDI Hospital. I'll also add to Teresa's point, I really feel like on social media, alcohol use with women is really being glorified right now. You know, these huge glasses of wine, and this is this is popular culture right now. This is COVID culture. And so, you know, I'm predicting that we're gonna see a rise in that sort of problem, unfortunately. But in terms of other mental health, what I've been noticing just anecdotally are just increasing symptoms in in depressive disorders and anxiety disorders, including generalized anxiety and especially OCD, seeing a ton of OCD and, and PTSD, family distress, domestic violence like Dr. Abreu mentioned, problematic coping, including substance use, disordered eating, addiction to digital media, of course, suicidal thoughts in the context of isolation, and The other thing I want to speak to is grief and delayed grieving. So I think a lot of people had, they had losses of loved ones from COVID and other illnesses. And in some cases, they weren't able to say goodbye because of COVID restrictions. But in other ways, people had um, ambiguous loss. So they might have had losses of business. They might have had losses of special events um, or even pregnancy loss that was swept under the rug during this time. Because people didn't even think to grieve them, given what we're all up against and have been going through. So I think um, at this point, people are returning to maybe go back and work on their trauma now or go back and grieve those losses or um, connect with a program of recovery and just return to trying to get, I think we're all trying to get out of survival mode. Um, but we're all sort of still in it in some ways because we're still trying to figure out if it's safe to go to the gym or a place of worship or visit out-of-state family. And all of these decisions are requiring energy from us on a daily basis. And that that's taking away energy for other things like basic self-care. So, I mean, really, in some ways, we could all create a trauma timeline for ourselves since March of 2020. And that may be helpful just to acknowledge to ourselves how resilient and how adaptive we have all been personally.
0: Absolutely. That really resonates and is so interesting because I've heard lots of people talk about loss throughout the past year and a half, but not specifically about grieving. And I think that's very profound to put it in those terms. I asked Dr. Hausnick if she could speak more about the effects of the pandemic on individuals with eating disorders and how being destabilized by such a stark change in routine as a result of quarantining and social distancing affected individuals who are in eating disorder recovery or who have struggled with disordered eating in the past.
3: Sure. I mean, so the research is saying now that Some of the trends we're seeing is if it was a pre-existing disorder and there was recovery, there's some relapsing now. There's a lot of free time to kind of spiral out and go back to that really um, thought disorder of an eating disorder. Um, If you're um, someone who's a minor and still living at home, those dysfunctional family dynamics are even exacerbated and accentuated. And you're stuck in them without your outside supports. So I think you know the family therapy is really important to get in there and um, start to heal those patterns. Um, Also, we're seeing in research that um, people with the with the pandemic are wanting um, immune immunity diets, diets to help improve and boost their immunity. And this is linking some people back to their um, wanting to eat really clean. And wanting to just get very strict about their diet again. And then, like I mentioned, we're seeing an increase in OCD. And OCD and um, a disorder such as anorexia are very close in the brain. And often are comorbid disorders. So um, that's as anxiety disorders get kicked up, so do people's unhealthy coping, such as using food or using restriction from food.
0: Can you tell our listeners about how the development and availability of the COVID-19 vaccine affected your organization and your clients? This is a loaded topic
2: <laughs> in our tiny little community. So um, as of right now, you know, we operate two houses. So maximum that we could house would be about 18 people. That's both houses combined. Um, and I, my house may or may not have children at any given time. So as the um, vaccine was coming out, our organization is small enough that we are allowed to determine what was best for each house. So we came up with safety guidelines that were within the, you know, um, MARS MAR is the main association of recovery residences, and that's based on the National Association of Recovery Residents. So we based our our COVID safety guidelines on those. You know, we are a licensed house, and we felt comfortable letting the residents make the choice for themselves in the beginning. I wound up uh, for a spell. I had several um, residents that were all in home health care. So they got the vaccine as soon as it came out. They work with you know the elderly, and they of course were our biggest concerns. Them being in and out of other houses, and then in and out of our house. As of right now, you know we're we're still leaving it up to the residents. It's done as well so far. My take on it, being a person in recovery, is that we've asked you to give up a lot of things. <laughs> you've given up being with your families. You've given up drugs. You've given up alcohol. You know, there's. I don't feel like we want to force you know um, any sort of a mandate. As of yet. Um, And we've done okay with that for right now. And so it's something that um, we continue to evaluate as an organization, you know, and each individual house continues to evaluate it. And we've been really fortunate with all the decisions that we've made. um, And all of the, uh, you know, all the precautions that we have taken have kept both houses, you know, in, in great standards throughout all of this. There's a lot of things that I require of people, right? Go to meetings, call your sponsor. you know. <laughs> so for right now, just really letting them have all the information that they need. We've had several clinics uh, within organizations that we're affiliated with. So there have been plenty of opportunities. So the people that did want to get the vaccine have always had it available to them. Um, and for the few people that didn't want the vaccine, um, you know, that was totally
1: their decision to make. I really feel for Teresa. You can Really, hear how she's trying to thread a needle there, and not not particularly easy to do. It I'd, I'd say the hospital has it a little easier than that.
0: This is Doctor Abreu from MDI Hospital.
1: And Governor Mills has has made it clear that uh, there needs to be a mandate for healthcare workers, and uh, you know the, the hospital is complying with that, and that's one way that uh, we have as an institution to help keep patients safe, uh, our staff safe, the community safe you know, I would encourage everyone to be vaccinated. It's the single best thing that an individual can do to protect themselves and their families, their loved ones and the people around them. And so I, I think that's a, it's a difficult issue, but I, I hope that people will continue if they haven't yet been vaccinated to seek out resources, speak to their uh, doctor, their nurse practitioner, or PA, get good information and, and make a, a well-informed decision about the uh, life-preserving treatment that is the the vaccine.
0: I'm wondering if you all could talk a bit about moving into the here and now, what precautions and protocols remain in place today, um, particularly with the presence of the Delta variant and breakout cases of COVID in individuals despite being vaccinated, and what remains the biggest challenge for you in your organization right now as we deal with the fallout and continued presence of COVID?
1: At MBI Hospital, they... Implemented, continue to implement a hospital-wide medical-grade masking policy for patients and staff. There's ongoing uh, pre-op and symptomatic COVID-19 testing. There's enhanced air filtration and air exchange in all facilities. There's also social distancing. Uh, I'd like to call it physical distancing, but I know social distancing is the the name du jour. And limitations on visitation and in person gatherings. Uh, there's a single point of entry for check in and screening at the hospital on the clinic. We've uh, adopted virtual meeting throughout the organization to, again, ensure that there is a good physical distancing between staff. Um, there's also been an increase in the amount of remote or remote hybrid work for employees who are able. Uh, we also have increased furniture spacing in the waiting rooms and protocols around travel and return to work. Vis a vis testing for employees. So these are all the things that continue to remain in place at MDI Hospital. Um, Of course, the hospital has been fantastic about making sure that all employees have opportunities to be vaccinated as quickly and easily as possible. And so that's something that I've made use of, that our staff have made use of. And uh, I'm, I'm really deeply appreciative of all those efforts that are. Administration and pharmacy department have made in order to make the vaccine so accessible.
3: Here's Dr. Hausnicht from MDI Hospital. I think I'll just add with it with our pandemic fatigue right now with the Delta variant and with any COVID related news, you know, I even found myself avoiding COVID related news <laughs> as much as I could, but breakthrough infections are very possible. And um, so I think that. Um, On some level, our pandemic fatigue impacts our thinking ability, our critical thinking ability, and we sort of default to the policy of our institution or state, and we prefer comforting thoughts such as, if I get COVID, it will be mild, or COVID only impacts those who are unvaccinated. And I think as a healthcare provider, we really need to stay vigilant and keep our critical thinking active and not block ourselves from news and and important research so that we can learn, continue to learn, um, and also protect ourselves and those around us. I had
0: heard of the term pandemic fatigue in the past, but I wanted to learn more. I asked Dr. Abreu if he could tell us more about it.
1: Pandemic fatigue. So natural and expected reaction to sustained and unresolved adversity in people's lives that has been brought on by COVID-19. I think that's the simplest way to explain it. What that looks like is demotivation to follow recommended protective behaviors emerging gradually over time and affected by a number of emotions, experiences, and perceptions. I think Dr. Hausnick did a really good job of how over time we gradually start to slip up. And so we may not be masking all the time, or we be, might be taking more risks. We might be going indoors more, congregating with other people. Uh, we might stop uh, listening to the experts about the risks of the COVID-19, or making decisions not to get vaccinated. Uh, I think th- those are all examples of what pandemic fatigue might look like for, for various individuals. A couple things that I can add, the perceived threat of the virus may decrease as people become used to its existence even if the epidemiological data show that risk may in fact be increasing. We have a good example of that here in Hancock County. During the months of September and October, we've had the highest number of cases that we've had at any other point during the pandemic. However, it has become, I think, even more common now to see people congregating, not wearing masks, despite the clear risk that those activities represent. So that's a, a really kind of tight example of what pandemic fatigue looks like when you're walking down the street or going near an establishment or into an establishment. At the same time, that perceived loss resulting from the pandemic response continues to increase over time. I think Dr. Hausneck did, did a really nice job of talking about the impact of loss over this last 21 months. And the longer that this goes on, the personal, social and potential economic consequences of restrictions around the pandemic response continue to increase. And for some people, the balance may shift so that the perceived cost of the response start to outweigh the perceived risks related to the virus. And so we're all we're we're making these very complex decisions. We're all doing our own individual calculus about what risk to take and which not to take. And over time, the longer this goes on, all of us are prone to taking greater and greater risk. There's also this issue around self-determination and freedom, and this is something that I think a lot of people focus on, but that those urges to be more uh, autonomous uh, grows as the restrictions continue or the existence of the virus persists, and that imposes inconveniences in all of our lives on a day-to-day basis, and uh, we start to feel like we need to exert more control over the situation, not feel as controlled by the virus or the response to the virus. And then I think the last thing that I would say uh, related to pandemic fatigue is that even under the most outrageous of circumstances, things can start to feel normal when they're experienced over a long period of time. And uh, in this case, people may become used to the pandemic and the threat it poses and complacency may result. Uh, I think Dr. Hausenka did a really good job of, alluding to that previously. So demotivation is natural, expected at this stage of a crisis. You know, at the beginning of a crisis, most people are able to tap into their surge capacity, you know, a collection of mental, physical, adaptive systems, let's say, that humans drawn for short-term survival in acutely stressful situations. However, when dire circumstances drag on, they have to adopt a different style of coping, and that's when you start to see this fatigue and demotivation. So I hope that was helpful in explaining what this is and what it looks like in a practical way. Extremely
0: helpful. Thank you. I'd just like to take a few seconds to remind you that you are tuned in to WERU Community Radio 89.9 in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. My name is Emma Weiss, and this is Community Wellness Watch. Today, we're talking about mental health and substance use recovery throughout the pandemic with Teresa Mastricolo from Midcoast Recovery Coalition and Dr. Hausnecht and Dr. Abreu from the Mount Desert Island Hospital Behavioral Health Center. Here's more about pandemic fatigue from Teresa. So what strikes me
2: um, from those two very, very telling definitions, uh, the critical thinking piece and then the, um, you know, the needing to outweigh one situation, needing to outweigh the danger of another. Um, So for us, you know, these are houses, these are residents that people live in. So if and when the you know, something pops up and somebody is tested positive or someone that they work with is tested positive, there's been a close contact. We're in this frantic space where uh, we have to separate and test and, and do our best to make sure that it doesn't take over the whole house while still maintaining everybody's recovery safety. So we had a situation where we had to split one of the houses and put people into hotels. So then we're like monitoring people in recovery and trying to keep them close. Or you know, um, uh, once or twice somebody had to go in quarantine with a family member. So we we want to and have to keep everybody safe health wise. But then we also have this other factor of, you know, uh, is it safe for me to send you home with your family to quarantine? Yes, they they have the virus, so they're quarantining as well, but that's the house that you relapsed in. So what am I, what can I do to support you, your health, but then also your recovery, because I still need you to stay safe, you know, recovery-wise. So we wind up in this sort of this battle of of what can we do to honor both of those places? And there are times where it seems like so unbelievably overwhelming. You literally like call three people from the organization. And you feel like there's no answer and then you step back and you realize, oh, there's like a really easy, safe answer, right? And so, you know, with a little bit of help from, you know, somebody who's looking from the outside in, they're able to help us like, here, this is your best plan of action. You know, this is what you can do. And we had really good luck with, you know, people that did need to go in quarantine um, and they were able to still stay safe and stay sober. I mean, these are things that there's no training for. (laughs) Like, We didn't have a plan for this. We didn't have until last year a pandemic plan for, for what happens. We have relapse plans. We have safety plans. Um, but this was just a whole a whole different animal. And when you throw early recovery into the mix as well, every day is completely different right now, um, even more so than it was before.
0: Many, many moving parts,
3: it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Y'all have changed fatigue in addition to pandemic mm. fatigue. Just all these changes to it. Yeah. to.
2: <laughs> I I honestly like I had a I had a resident who had gone and visited with her children and she came home and the next day she found out that one of the girls, one of her daughters had COVID. So she called and let me know. So we took her out. We put her in a hotel to quarantine. She was perfectly and completely no symptoms or anything, but we took her out till she could get tested and, you know, wait the time frame and, and do all the right things. And so she tested positive. And so again, I, I had like, I couldn't even see what was going to work. You know, we live in a resort area. There were no hotel rooms available. How was I going to get her a hotel that was going to be close enough to check on her? I was like, okay, maybe we can rearrange the third floor and give her her own bathroom. I mean, I was like, literally like ready to call an architect and remodel my house. Right. And <laughs> the girl called me and she was like, Hey, is it okay if I just go quarantine with my mom? Cause she's got my girls and we're going to quarantine together. And I was like, Oh yeah, that seems like a really simple solution. (laughs) So like, I I just couldn't see the simplest, easiest solution because in my mind I was like, Oh no, I have seven other people like, Oh, what are we going to do? You know, just like imagining the worst case and the biggest, you know, commotion. And it was really just like, she packed a bag and drove to her mom's house and checked in every morning. and was like, wow. Yeah. Thank you. That was, that was the way to go.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering if there are any great moments from this very challenging year and a half that you can tell us about moments of resilience or triumph from your clients or your staff or
3: just bright moments that come to mind. So I can speak to this in terms of some encouraging national statistics. And I think that's important too, because it's not just healthcare workers that have gone through this, it's all of us. And I think if we look collectively at how we've done as a nation, there are some um, silver linings to this. This is Dr. Hausnick from MDI Hospital. Um, So a national study connected with the American Foundation for Suicide found that Since COVID, 50% of people are actually more open to talking about mental health and 75% of people are more aware of the importance of taking care of themselves. And they named things like exercise, getting enough sleep, eating healthy, staying in touch virtually, and sticking to a routine. So people are talking about how they feel and they know healthy coping. They have knowledge of that. And also families are showing resilience. So 70% of parents say that the pandemic has actually made them better parents. And I, I'm one of those. Um, and 30% of coupled people would say that their relationship with their partner has improved in, during COVID. So this is encouraging data. I'm so happy to hear that.
0: <laughs> Here's Teresa Mastricolo from Mid Coast Recovery Coalition. Um, for us, a big picture in the recovery world, we've gotten loud about
2: what it is that we need and what it is that we do, um, and how crippling and how deadly uh, silence can be, um, and and exactly what it's meant to lose resources in a in a broad sense of like our community here in the Knox County and Waldo County area. I think that the organizations involved in our work, um, not just recovery, but The hospitals, the homeless coalition, the sheriff's office, um, we have, as soon as we were able to start to get together again, we did, we banded together and we were like, all right, we need to, we need to help, we need to fix, we need to find solutions, we need to bridge gaps, right? What's happening, where are people falling through the cracks and how can we Be better about that. I've seen unbelievable growth in partnerships. You know, community partnerships. What do we have that we can offer to you? Uh, What do you guys need to get through and to continue to grow? So my sense of community has has grown exponentially, and so my sense of hope has grown exponentially. Doing this work instead of getting um, instead of losing hope and getting disheartened, I've really I've come through this with a lot of blessings and organizationally when we were completely forced to internalize everything um, it made us tighten up you know we didn't exactly know what our role was in the beginning because the housing game was new to us And when we lost outside resources like meetings and when we got full and we lost managers and, you know, people were out sick and people were there was just a lot of things happening. We we had to look at what we were doing, what's working, what's not working, what can we make better? How can we tighten things up? How can we bring in more structure without suffocating the nature of what we need this work to look like? And I'm enormously proud of my organization and the support that we get, um, from, from the executive director and from the board, and they gave us the opportunity to see what worked and see what didn't. And I think, I know that, you know, we are coming through this year so much better than we were last year. Um, and we know so much more and so, um, we're able to now turn around and share that with other organizations. Look, we've gone through the pitfalls of some of this. Let us help. (laughs) You can avoid some of this. Let us share what we learned with you. So to be truthful for all of the struggles, um, there have been a lot of silver linings in our our world.
0: Thank you, that's so great to hear. Is there anything you wish that more people knew about mental health um, or substance use and substance use recovery?
1: I'm going to be somewhat blunt in my response here. And I mean, before I get started, I just like to preface by saying that every life is precious, and that everyone is deserving of care.
0: This is Doctor Abreu from MDI Hospital.
1: But the COVID nineteen pandemic has laid bare how differently we treat psychiatric illness and non psychiatric medical illnesses. For many years in this country, there's been what we can refer to as an opioid epidemic and Maine has not been untouched by the ravages of opioid use disorder. In 2020, for instance, there were 504 opioid-related overdose deaths in the state, and through August of 2021, there were 399 opioid-related overdose deaths. These numbers are shocking, and talking in terms of statistics, it's easy to overlook that each one of those people has a name, a story, a family, and experience immense suffering and struggle. But to the point of how differently we treat mental and physical illness since the beginning of the pandemic, there've been 1,095 COVID deaths. Yet the amount of time, money, and resource that has been afforded to the treatment of opioid use disorder is minuscule in comparison to what's been done for the response to COVID. Part of why this problem exists is not too different than the causes of pandemic fatigue. Our healthcare system in this country much like our own minds, is really good at responding to acute problems. Doctors like me, nurses, other healthcare workers, uh, the the healthcare delivery system in general, are really primed to be able to tap into that surge capacity and engage those adaptive behaviors to respond to acute situations. We are really good at treating circumscribed and acute problems, but so much less effective at treating chronic illnesses like opioid use disorder, which for many individuals is a multi-year struggle that can last decades and unfortunately can be a terminal illness for many. And so for me, I, it, you know, I think Dr. Haustek may not see herself this way, but she's, a, I think, a positive psychologist at heart. And certainly I can see and hear the optimism in Teresa's voice, but I'm a little, little bit more pessimistic about what I've seen over the last 20 months and the discrepancy and resource that's given to different kinds of illnesses. I hope that this is a wake-up call for our nation, and that uh, people do not need to continue to suffer for what is a very treatable illness.
3: That was really moving, and I could not agree more. And it's very special for me to hear that, and also for my brothers and sisters in recovery. And um, Teresa, my hats off to you and the work you're doing on the front lines. Those first few years of recovery are they're they're gnarly. <laughs> These a San Diego word.
2: I am, again, I'm so hopeful to hear the medical community acknowledge what, you know, everybody in recovery has been screaming since the beginning, you know, and look at COVID deaths, because, you know, if we were to, if, if we were to hear the number of drug overdose or, or alcohol related deaths every single day on the radio, we would probably be funneling a lot more resources that way. Um, so I I, you know, it's nice to hear that throughout the medical community that that's being acknowledged as well. And I think it's really important. I I'm getting more and more reminders every day that the mental health piece. You know, we don't have enough recovery homes for sure anywhere. Uh, we have almost no mental health based homes that I know of. So. I'm getting people that are coming to us and they have recovery in their, in their history somewhere, but really the bigger piece of their puzzle is mental health. And my house is not, you know, we don't have clinicians on staff. We're not equipped to deal with that. So we're looking, where can, where can we find somebody help? Where can we put them in a setting similar to this where they can receive instead of recovery based help, they can receive fairly intensive mental health to get to a more stable place and there's nowhere that we've really found. We're really struggling, even with our connections throughout the community, to find safe places for people who, you know, the mental health piece has overcome the recovery piece
0: for now. My last question for you all is for folks who are in recovery or folks who are not, folks who struggle with mental health issues and folks who do not typically, what is the best thing that we can do for our mental health when we are put in isolation or thrown out of our routines and how can we support others who are experiencing isolation or big changes in their routines as well?
3: I think for mental illness, we've been led to believe that for introverts during isolation, they're fine. This is Dr. Hausnick from MDI Hospital. But really quality alone time uh, that introverts need um, to restore and replenish is very different than forced isolation. And, you know, being cut off from sources of love. So I think people need to sort of reframe that this is not whether you're an extrovert or introvert, how how well you're going to do and function. We all need those sources of love. Um, my second point, and in virtual communities or FaceTime or any other sources of connection, um, are better than no community and no connection. But also, I hear repeatedly that people have fallen off from just basic health components, um, their food, their weight, their physical fitness, their sleep. And I think if people could take a small step toward going back to the basics and sort of stabilizing their basic health, that would really benefit their mental health. For example, this month, I'm going to take advantage of our hospital. We have a registered dietitian. We have acupuncture. I'm going to do both things because I've been in survival Mode. I've been survival eating, and I want to go back to ways to feeling my best versus just getting through the day for the last two years. So I just encourage people um, to take one small step in one of those categories. I agree wholeheartedly.
0: This is Teresa Mastricolo from Midcoast Recovery Coalition. Uh, The
2: biggest thing that we see, the smallest, littlest things, the basics will help get you through every day some sort of connection with another person, some little act of kindness, some days just walking outside, just literally just making sure that you get fresh air on your face and, um, you know, a couple glasses of water. I think in the very beginning of this, we were like, oh, you know, it was like a snowstorm almost like, oh, we're going to buckle down and just kind of do whatever we want. We're going to eat whatever we want, you know, not exercise. And, and then it lasted longer than We thought, and now it's like, oh, we have got to get back to some self-care. Spending time alone indoors is different than actually spending intentional time, you know, meditating, um, reading, you know, anything. Um, I'm in huge agreement there, right? Just back to the basic things that we know make us feel better.
0: Thank you all so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's truly been an honor. Before we go, could you let our listeners know where they can find you or they're on the web or who they can contact to access your services or to learn more? And all of this information will be in the show notes as well.
1: For anyone wanting to establish care with a psychiatrist or psychotherapist, um, they can contact the MDI Behavioral Health Center at 207-288-8604. The Downey's Treatment Center in Ellsworth is also an excellent resource for anyone seeking assistance in treatment for opioid use disorder, and they can be reached at 207-667-6890. More information is also available at dtcme.org. For any acute psychiatric crisis or emergency need, there should never be hesitation in calling the main crisis line at 1-888-568-1112. The intentional warm line at one 771 9276 is also a very good resource that's available anytime, 24 hours a day, and is a mental health peer-to-peer phone support line for adults age 18 and older offering mutual conversations with a trained peer specialist who has life experience with mental health recovery.
2: We can be found online at midcoastrecovery.org. Uh, We have a website, we have a Facebook page and, and anybody that reaches out to us that is in need of resources, we help connect them with the appropriate resources. Even if it's not us, no, no contact goes unanswered.
0: One last note from MDI hospital, the volunteers who donate their time to the MDI hospital organization play an important role in the experience of their patients and families. They work alongside healthcare professionals, help in clinical and non-clinical areas, and support the hospital's mission to care for not just the patient, but for our entire community. To learn more about volunteer opportunities within the MDI hospital organization, listeners can contact Julie Hagel at 207-801-5042. Thank you so much again to Teresa, Dr. Hausnecht, and Dr. Abreu for their time, insight, and expertise. It was incredibly meaningful to me to talk to these fantastic providers about their very important work providing mental health care and substance use recovery support to our community. This is WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org. Thank you so much for tuning in to our third full-length program of Community Wellness Watch, a program about public health. My name is Emma Weiss, WERU intern and your Community Wellness Watch host. Stay tuned for monthly programs talking with healthcare providers about how they have adjusted their practices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and how they continue to keep our communities healthy and safe. Information on next month's program will be on WERU.org very soon. Thanks again to Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Stay well, everyone.